Hello and welcome to episode number 21 of Making Media Now, a filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, we go big as I talk with my guest, writer, director, producer, Daniel Ferguson. Daniel's films take on big subjects, the Tour de France, Jerusalem, and the journey to Mecca. And he shoots them in a big format for big IMAX screens all over the world. His latest immersive IMAX film is Superpower Dogs, which introduces audiences to the life-saving superpowers and extraordinary bravery of some of the world's most amazing canines. Here's the trailer. Meet Halo. Hi. Do you want to come home with me? She's a Dutch Shepherd puppy. Destined for greatness. Take my hand, I'll lead the way. Don't be scared, don't be afraid. I'll bring you home, I'll keep you safe. Join Halo. Good job. As she learns to save lives in disasters. Good girl. And gets a little inspiration. From some of the most amazing four-legged heroes on earth. Hero of my story, I'm a What if our best friends are our best hope? IMAX invites you to come along for the ride and experience the world of dogs through their eyes, ears, and noses. I'm a Superpower Dogs with super narration by me, Chris Evans, major dog fan. Experience it in IMAX. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. And now on to my conversation with Daniel Ferguson. Hello and welcome, Daniel Ferguson. Thanks, Michael, for having me on. It's great to speak with you again. Uh, where does this podcast find you? I am home in Montreal, in, uh, in Quebec, um, staring out at a frozen, wintry landscape, just to paint you a picture. Okay, well, you're in Quebec. So this officially marks... Making Media Now's first international podcast. Oh, it's about time. So hats off. <laughs> Good. Well, you can only go further afield from here. Yeah, exactly. Our, our, this is our slow incremental plan for global takeover. So I, I appreciate you. Uh, I'm glad to be a small part of it. A comrade in that effort. I would not be uh, engaging in hyperbole to describe Daniel Ferguson 
as a filmmaking renaissance man. When you look at the, the scope and the breadth and the medium that you work in, which is primarily large format IMAX film, large format telling large stories, and I want to get to all of that, but I'm always very interested in kind of the, um, the underpinnings of what drove you to the craft. And in your case, what fed what seems to be like a bottomless well of curiosity about stories, histories, cultures, and how to share those in this massive format. I love starting with curiosity, Michael, just because that that's the wellspring, uh, you know, and we all have our different forms that we express ourselves. But, you know, for me, this journey probably began in, in uh, well, way back. I, I, I don't know. I, I can track it to high school, certainly in terms of a desire to tell stories on film. And uh, film was always a huge part of my life. And you know, my parents actually, um, I was a bit of an experimental child and that my parents uh, forbade me from watching television until I was five. Um, but they took me to see Star Wars when I was, I think, four. Uh, and, and, you know, apparently, you were four. Wow. I wish I remember that, but it blew my mind. Uh, I think I was probably just doing Chewbacca impressions uh, in the <laughs> car on the way back. But, you know, I think that, that being in the cinema, you know, I have these memories of going to see Raiders of the Lost Ark and my mother, you know, sort of uh, 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 covering my eyes, the melting faces scene. And those are the kind of memories that I grew up with, was, was being in a cinema. Uh, with with a group of people, and uh, you know, I, I wish to impart that on my own children. It's so funny to watch them find their way in storytelling, and it's different. And I have to be accustomed to that. But for me, it was really a combination. I went to a high school of, of for, the, for, the, for the arts. Filmmaking for me was the great combination of all my interest of music, of theater, of drama, you know, of visual arts, and so forth. Uh, and, and I just sort of, at that time through high school and university, I lived and breathed films. I would skip school and <laughs> don't tell any of my teachers this, of course, but you know, I would go and see sometimes three movies a day. And, and that was uh, very much part of my education. So film always spoke to me and, and, you know, being in a theater, uh, spoke to me as well. And when I had the chance to obviously work in IMAX, uh, it, it was sort of a, a further a continuation of that essential impulse of, of curiosity of, how to explore this world through this incredible canvas. So yeah, that's kind of how it began. So the, the formative films that you mentioned, um, um, Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, these are big, these are event type movies. Uh, did your passion for films stay kind of in that area? At what point did you, do, do, if you recall, being a viewer and having a, a visual sense of the movie uh, along with a narrative sense of what was going on? And did you find yourself gravitating toward one type of uh, depiction or another? No, it, it changed certainly, Michael, uh, throughout the years. You know, I became, uh, I, I'm obsessive by nature. So, you know, I would see films multiple times. And it was the great thing about my father was a teacher and he'd bring home a VCR, you know, in, in the eighties, this was a big deal. The idea of repeatability, a film that could hold up and you could watch 50, 60, a hundred times. Uh, today we take that for granted, but that I learned so much. And there were certain films that, that for me, at least, uh, 2001, a space odyssey, Lawrence of Arabia, um, Amadeus, you know, uh, there's a, there's a whole ton of films that I would just watch again and again and again and again and again and, and get so much from that. 
and and I know them backwards and forwards. And sometimes I'd watch them without the sound, uh, and I'd learn so much from that, just in terms of of the editing and the pacing and the rhythm. But I didn't really think much about the craft per se or becoming a filmmaker until uh, until until high school, where most of my friends were going off to art college and everything, and 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 I sort of decided. Um, you know, much to the chagrin of my, of my parents and grandparents that I wasn't going to become a, a lawyer. I was, I was going to go off and become a, a movie maker. I was inspired by the French New Wave and, and, and the sort of the, the movie brats, this idea of a collective of people. I loved the idea that um, it wasn't sort of a solo pursuit. You know, uh, it wasn't poetry and painting. Um, it was this, this sort of collective enterprise where you'd bring your best ideas and your best game someone else would too. And the thing would just grow and grow and grow. And, 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 you know, I think some of the, 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 the moments of greatest bliss in my life have been uh, to feel like you're part of this uh, creative river, this, this, this a river of, of sort of collective ideas. Um, and I love that, whether it's playing in, a, in an orchestra or a band uh, where people are riffing off each other and ideas or making a movie where, uh, you know, you bring on the right uh, collaborators, director of photography, composer, production designer, and the thing just grows and becomes more expansive than you ever envisioned. And, uh, and it's pretty intoxicating when it works. When you think back to early in your career, can you pinpoint what you might define as the big break? The big break, uh, you know, you always have a sense of how it's going to work and, and, and <laughs> you think that it's going to be linear. You know, that's the, that's the funny thing. You, you know, you grow up with this, uh, idea of, you know, you make one thing that leads to another thing. And, and of course, that doesn't necessarily turn out to be true. Uh, I think that, you, you know, um, the big break is something I had to do for myself. Uh, you know, no one's going to give it to you. Uh, I think that's one of the things that I learned. And, you know, you're looking for validation, but sometimes it has to come from within or your own peer group. And so when I was in uh, university, I went to McGill and, and uh, I kind of founded a filmmaking collaborative there. And we bought all this 16 millimeter uh, sync sound equipment and everything. And we went out and made this film. It was far too ambitious for our skill set uh, called Requiem for a Brute, which was a combination of sort of Hitchcock and Dostoevsky about a group of, you know, sort of four, uh, four sort of uh, dubious characters who meet one night at this hot spring in Siberia in 1883. And, and they sort of have this competition about which body they're going to bury in this hot spring, the only place the earth is soft enough to bury this body. And they have to sort of praise the virtues of their, of their bodies. And it turns out, of course, that there's a mix up of bodies. And, you know, we, we, we wrote the screenplay and we filmed it. It was ridiculously ambitious. And, you know, we sort of did the costumes and, uh, we shot it over the course of four weeks, uh, in the dead of winter. And it was just a brutal experience, brutal, but it was this, uh, you know, people talk about a baptism by fire. By the end of that, there were many people who said, this isn't for me. Um, but I think some of us said, wow, we love this amid the hardships and everything. We had no idea what it was going to take. And then of course, you know, it's one thing to shoot the movie. That's another thing to, to finish the movie. That's what a lot of people don't realize when they're, you know, embarking on their first venture. Uh, and, you know, uh, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of dollars later, uh, you, you know, and getting into fundraising. And that's how I learned to become a producer yes. was that, you, you know, it was really, what does it take to make a film? And, and it takes sort of more than just ideas. You know, it takes your ability to raise money and motivate people. Um, and, you know, convince funding authorities in Canada, you know, we have a lot of public funding. Uh, in that case, it was just, you know, uh, uh, I think movies have become much more democratic and that's, it's, it's less expensive than I, I think I, all of my 
<laughs> pocket change went to Kodak back in those days, you know, every scrap. And I, I, you know, to some degree I'm resentful because the price of entry used to be so much higher. And now it's, I think a little bit easier with the, uh, the changing technology. Nonetheless, it's still a massive expensive venue. Um, and if you're not careful, you know, those experiences can burn you or they can convince you that this is the path and, um, and that you, you know, you just love that milieu and you love that sense of collaboration. It certainly calls the, the, uh, wannabes from those who are really going to make the commitment to seeing the process through to the end. Yeah. I mean, I saw people at that stage, they're very driven by ego and there was a sense of, you know, people wanting to be the next Quentin Tarantino or the next Scorsese or the next this or the next that. And I don't know that that kind of desire. I don't know, at least for me, it didn't speak to me. Um, I wanted to be the next me, you know, I just wanted to see like, what, what do I have to say about the world? And, um, and, and I, I just, I had all these stories bubbling up in me and I'm a, I'm a, a child of, of refugees. You know, my, my family fled Lithuania and, uh, uh, you know, I, I've always grown up with these sort of stories of, um, the trials and tribulations of my mother, you know, fleeing Europe and, and this kind of thing. And I mentioned that only because that to me was sort of the beginning of these incredible larger than life stories that then I started to collect in journals. And as I began to travel more, I just started to collect stories. And I realized that, 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 that was what I was interested in is mythology, storytelling. I ended up, I got a degree in, in theology and history, but I would say largely because I gravitated towards <laughs> uh, both charismatic professors, but also where the stories were. Right. Uh, and, and I think it's true that, that, that it's way more important, at least from my perspective, to know um, what it is that you want to say about the world rather than necessarily how you say it. You can, you can learn that craft. So I decided not to go to film school. Uh, and, I, and I went to a sort of an academic institution, you know, our sort of Ivy League uh, McGill. Uh, uh, and and at, at the first couple of years, I was, I was really unhappy until I kind of found this filmmaking group where I could kind of channel my efforts and figure out what it is that I wanted out of university, which was to read great texts and to be inspired. And, and in my case, to see a whole ton of movies, uh, to sort of figure out where do I fit in all this? Uh, so yeah, that's kind of the origins. How did your immersion into large f- format filmmaking come about? It was, uh, really through happenstance. I was, um, I began to develop, uh, so I became a producer back in university and that was completely unintentional. Just, there was no one around to raise the money and to figure out logistics and things like that. And it wasn't the sexiest job in the world. Everyone just wanted to sort of be a director or writer or this and that. And, and, uh, to some degree cinematographer, but producer was not the sexiest thing in the world. Uh, you were sort of largely facilitating uh, the dreams of others. Um, but I began to realize that, that, uh, producers, uh, can shape a picture um, almost as much as anyone. And uh, that the idea of learning the nuts and bolts, you know, from start all the way to the finish is come sometimes the best education. So I would tell anyone who's thinking of getting into it or, or, or maybe is a bit disillusioned that being, being on the producing side or, or, or on the editorial side, you know, just see everything you can. Uh, lift the lid off. And, uh, and that's what it did for me. So I was uh, working on a Canadian Indian co-production in uh, 97, 98. And uh, we were bringing actors in from Bollywood into, uh, into Montreal for a shoot. And I happened to, I was trying to put them up in, this was before, you know, I guess maybe Craigslist or something. It wasn't Airbnb or anything. I was looking for, for, uh, 
uh, homes to, to, to house these, um, these, these big name Bollywood actors. And, uh, I came across a landlady whose husband, uh, was an IMAX filmmaker. And, um, at first I made nothing of it. And then I contacted him again. I thought me, you know, <laughs> there's something about serendipity here and, and I should take advantage of this. So I, I met him, uh, and we hit it off. And, and the next thing I knew I was sort of being, uh, offered, um, uh, you know, a job, uh, uh, line producing, um, mm-hmm. a film on fresh water that was kind of with Keith Merrill who made a grand Canyon hidden secrets and all the destination films that if people ever went and saw like hidden Hawaii and Niagara and these kinds of things. And, uh, yeah, I just jumped right into it. I became sort of UPM line producer for a number of, uh, IMAX films. Then I learned about distribution and the marketplace and, uh, uh, that was kind of this accidental tumble into large format, which, uh, you know, I'd seen films as kids and I always loved the format. I just, uh, I don't know. I always felt that IMAX films, uh, I have to be careful here, but that they were sort of, um, uh, perhaps they, 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 they had sublime scenes in them, but rarely did the sum of its parts, um, produce sort of that, that transformative experience that narrative cinema had in me. So I, I didn't have a strong draw to it. I just, I loved the, uh, immersive nature of the experience and, and, uh, was curious, as you mentioned before, about where could this format go? You know, I love the films of Stephen Lowe, who I later got to know very, very well and, and consider a friend today. Uh, and, and there were others who I considered sort of more, uh, poets of the genre, you know, who made films that could be considered experimental. Uh, I think that, that IMAX films, you know, they sort of began to, uh, fall into a bit of a, a bit of a a trope, a pattern, um, over the course of 40 minutes, which is a challenge to tell a story in that, in that space. Uh, and it's a, it's a difficult format to work in just because you've got to please, you know, from five year olds to 85. And so it's not, uh, something that's specifically targeted to, to any one audience. Uh, it's a very general audience friendly approach as a director too. There's a a certain pressure, you know, to maintain almost the thrill ride aspect of the film, but you're also trying to tell a story. And when I look at the roster of IMAX films that you have made, uh, the, uh, surviving the tour de France, the journey to Mecca, uh, superpowered dogs. They're all very grounded in story. And yet the visuals are spectacular. And you seem to have been able to thread that needle uh, to, to provide the visual wow, but also the, uh, the narrative thread that allows the viewer to, to, to really make a connection to the individuals and what's at stake in the stories that are being told. I think that's the challenge with these, these films is that, uh, I mentioned the parameters, both sort of commercial and institutional. These are films that play largely in science museums, uh, places like the museum of science, Boston, and, uh, the new England aquarium, you know, to name a couple of local places. Uh, so you always have to keep in mind, you're going to have, uh, maybe 20% of the audience will be school groups, that kind of thing. So you might enter into it with dreams of, of you know, being the next, uh, uh, Francis Coppola or whatever, but you know, you run up against the rocks of, of, of reality and that, um, this cinematic experience fits within a larger context, generally of visiting a museum. So people are not sitting there saying, Oh, let's, let's drive to the, the IMAX theater. It's generally, let's go to the museum for a half day 
And uh, we'll take a break from the exhibits and put our feet up and watch a film and be transported to some place or gain some new perspective on the universe uh, in this short time span. And I think that's where the format is at its most powerful is to obviously, you know, we talk about taking you to places you could never otherwise go, but it's shifting your perspective on something you thought you understood right. or uh, something you otherwise couldn't uh, because of your own daily reality or the fact that you're, you know, too large to experience the atomic world or, you know, too small to experience the, the macro world of, 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 of galaxies and, 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 uh, black holes and et cetera. So, uh, that, that shifting scale and that, that shifting perspective is one of the things that's really important, but it's not enough. You know, as you mentioned the thrill ride, it's like, you know, after a few minutes of that, the novelty sort of wears off and, uh, you know, you, you want to be hooked by this. And I think most people expect to be moved. You know, when I watch a film, no matter what it is, if I'm not compelled by it, you know, moved, or if I don't have a sense of wonder, um, that's what you've got to engage people on some level, hopefully some kind of emotional level too. And I think you, well, look, look at commercials, you can do it in 30 seconds, but you know, you, you, uh, good commercials, I should say, or, or, you know, a film like a Pixar film, like up, you know, within the first five, 10 minutes, you're weeping. So, uh, screen time has nothing to do with that. It's just a matter of how do you really immerse the audience and then give them some kind of transformative emotional experience where they walk out 35, 40 minutes later and their view on things is, is completely different. Um, than when they walked in. I mean, that's the opportunity, the format. How do you find yourself thinking when you're, uh, when you're contemplating, you're putting together your first treatment of what's going to be an IMAX film? Are you conscious of how your brain is working uh, from the standpoint of, uh, you know, somebody who is so expert at creating images, but also wanting to tell the story and are you conscious of, okay, so what's coming into my mind first? I know I want this visual. I want the, you know, I want the whale breaching, but what's important about why the whale, the whale breaches, right? Are we moving then to a story about someone who lives uh, on the coast of that area where the whale breaches? So I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to how you you sort of serve all of those constituencies, so to speak. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting process in that, you, you, you have to consider to some degree your, your mandate, you know, so that's going to be different whether you're making a film like Jerusalem or whether you're making a film uh, like Superpower Dogs uh, or, or the film that I'm currently commissioned to make for the Museum of Science Boston. This is tentatively called uh, a New England Odyssey. Uh, you, you have to look at, okay, what's, uh, you know, to some degree, who's the client? Uh, Right. And, and that doesn't decide everything. What I'm trying to do ultimately is a film like Jerusalem was skewed a little bit older. So I'm considering, okay, yes, this is covered maybe in society, religion and ethics in the curriculum for uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers. But uh, you're going to have a lot of people uh, of an older age bracket for a film like that who have always dreamed of going to Jerusalem, whether they're religious or not. You know, the people are, are naturally curious about that part of the world, I think. Uh, and they want to go beyond the headlines. So the question is, how can we get an access to those places that have a sort of mythological dimension and bring them to people uh, in a way that, that, that sort of fosters, uh, shall we say, empathy? Mm -hmm. You know, that shift in perspective we talked about. So for me, it begins with, uh, you know, like there are set pieces that will come in. Like I know, let's take Jerusalem. Um, I want to fly over that city because I want to 
people to realize that the old city in particular uh, is so tiny. You know, it's it's uh, smaller than a, a quarter square mile. And yet within this quarter square mile, uh, there are events that, that, that shaped uh, you know, our planet in, in, in such a dramatic way. And, and sort of the, the source of beliefs for, 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 gosh, you know, over half the world's population, et cetera, in this tiny area. And so that um, needs to be seen from the air. So how do we do that? And then that becomes logistical, uh, practical questions. But uh, so I know I need that, for example. I know I want to go underground. You know, I want to show people that the Jerusalem that exists today is built on layers and layers and layers of previous civilizations. So how do I do that? Um, and, and I know I want to sort of recreate the past and that's going to require some matte painting and that kind of thing. But I also want to give it a human perspective because just a bunch of aerials after a while, it, you know, it's cold and, and, and it's, and it's sort of, uh, it's not really, there's no intimacy to it. And so in the case of Jerusalem, you know, we decided to find these uh, young women, uh, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, from different constituencies who could take us through their Jerusalem. And so you could be immersed in the life of another. And so when I talk about taking you to places that you could never otherwise go, whether it's the deep oceans or, or, or a place like Mecca uh, or outer space, it's always about perspective. So you asked about like the breaching whale. I'm more interested in, 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 in sort of who's watching that breaching whale because sure. Uh, the, the nature of IMAX is that is every shot is a subjective shot, whether you want that or not. It's because the, the generally, especially on the dome, the image surrounds your periphery. So your brain is being constantly tricked into believing it's there. And the question is how to play with that and not necessarily make a film about a bunch of scientists pushing knobs and buttons where you're kept at a distance. You know, that's a waste of a format, but how do you treat the audience as the main participant as the main character in the story, but also get them invested emotionally in a character who has real stakes. And that's this constant balancing act of first person perspective, but also listening to voices, when to use sound, because sound tends to get clobbered by this giant image. You know, how long shots should play. That's one thing that's very critical is that generally, if you can sustain a single shot over, say, have multiple acts within a single shot, then the audience is sort of lulled into being there. If you chop up the footage too much, like you would for television or another format, a smaller format, uh, you tend to interrupt that sort of hypnotic experience. Tell me uh, about what, if any, unique physical demands are, are called upon on the part of the filmmaker when you're shooting in that format. Well, you need to be in shape. And why is that? <laughs> I, no, no. I, I, listen, I, I think that... Uh, Filmmaking generally is 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 very grueling physically. You know, there's obviously different parts of the process. I I love the screenwriting part of things, uh, just because you know the money tap isn't isn't really running yet, uh, and so you have the luxury. And I, and I would say to anyone, invest, invest, invest in research and development, in, in, in casting. And I refer to you know for documentaries as well. And it's it's so much about research and casting and just throwing ideas at the wall. And before you start spending money, that's so important. Um, production is just very physically grueling in every respect. IMAX perhaps more so just because you're attaching the camera to all kinds of strange things, you know, and these cameras, uh, well, they used to be, and they are to some degree still, if you're shooting a native 3d, they tend to be very large and very bulky and cumbersome and they require a significant footprint. So it's not enough to just sort of put it on sticks and sliders. You know, we're talking about techno cranes 
and uh, you know, increasingly drones, but you know, um, I still think that helicopters have a huge role to play. Boats and you know, uh, uh, fixed-wing aircraft, and you know, frankly, a lot of things a camera should never be put on. Um, and you're trying to give the audience that perspective they cannot get on television. So I'm always thinking, where do I put the camera, or how do I tell this story in a way that the audience cannot see? on Netflix or on National Geographic or whatever it is, you know, how do I get people to leave the theater and saying, Oh my gosh, you know, I'd never seen that thing from this perspective. You know, I'd never been under the floor or directly above, or I'd never uh, been in the perspective of a 15 year old girl walking through this sort of male dominated austere uh, uh, environment, whatever it is. I, I love to shake things up. And so that means seeing everything that I can on the subject that's been done before. You know, I, I don't want to be accused of naivete. I want to know what's out there, who's done what. And then I want to find my own path, uh, not just for the sake of novelty, but I think that audiences are becoming incredibly sophisticated. I mean, they certainly always have been, but we have access to so much great stuff now, whether it's on, you know, YouTube or uh, you know, all the BBC natural history stuff, you know, even kids are growing up with exquisite natural history. So how do we be different? How do we be better? How do we be more sublime in the IMAX format? Cause we're not, we're going to lose it. Yes. Along those lines. So we're, we're coming up to a one year anniversary where uh, cinema pretty much around the world has been closed uh, due to COVID-19. And people have either just by default or because of a, um, you know, a newly found interest, the globe over been binging television. And, you know, binging television is a broad generic statement. And there's a whole lot of variation in the quality of the television they've been binging. That's all very subjective to begin with. But I think it's safe to say a lot of the stuff that people have developed a visual relationship certainly doesn't come anywhere near a cinematic experience, let alone an IMAX experience. What do you think, if any, is going to be the relationship between viewers and uh, cinematic expectations when people do start going back to theaters? Well, that's a really good question, Michael. You know, I go back and forth. Uh, I, I like to consider myself an optimist. So I don't think that cinema is going anywhere. But I, you know, I, think, I do think there's some truth to the fact that the cinematic experience was, um, uh, it meant a different thing even before the pandemic. Um, you know, the joke in, in, in a lot of filmmaking circles is that Marvel won the war. Uh, and, and so that meant that, that, that a lot of, um, a lot of theatrical cinematic experiences were homogenous for people. You know, all the films sort of looked a little bit the same and there's been a lot written and ink spilled about, uh, you know, people like Scorsese and, and, and superhero movies and whatever. My issue is just in terms of the variety of the experience and the, 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 that sort of essential thirst to go to the cinema and have, have, a potentially transformative experience in a, in a room full of strangers, a darkened room full of strangers. So everything that, that people like Denis Villeneuve and uh, that Chris Nolan have said, um, you know, I don't want to believe that we're experiencing the death of cinema, but we're definitely going through something. And I would like to believe that the right films at the right time, as we emerge from this, will be very cathartic for us as a society. 
because I, I, I do think that um, perhaps emotionally, perhaps neurologically, different things are happening to us as we sit in a theater versus, you know, with, with some chips and a glass of red wine or whatever at home, watching something on streaming. Um, not to say that you can't have a transformative experience watching television, but I just think those experiences are different. And I think that we can afford a breadth of, um, of movie loving experiences. So I'm, I'm crushed, um, not to be able to go to the cinema, not to take my children to the cinema. Um, and I just hope that we'll be able to go back and that what we do will hopefully be reminded of why we want to go to the cinema. Um, it's, it's tragic a little bit to see uh, the cinematic experience dominated by sort of big, loud CGI films. And I understand a lot of those middle of the road films will just migrate to streaming. But, um, you know, I, that's where I think someone like Christopher Nolan and his use of the IMAX format is, is, is absolutely wonderful. Uh, just because th we're compelled to go and see it on the giant screen. There needs to be a sense that if you miss it right. on the giant or IMAX screen, that your life will be somehow impoverished. Right. Uh, that is, you know, a part of the attraction is I remember talking to people about seeing a film like Gravity and they said, oh yeah, you know, I watched it on my TV and I just felt my heart sink. You know, there are Absolutely. certain films. Or even worse, I watched it on my phone. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and, Listen, I'm, I'm not saying that you can't be moved by that. I, I've come to tears uh, watching films on airplanes and and, and all kinds of uh, strange places. Uh, but there's something about our ability to maybe be alone with ourselves in a room of people. That's a strange uh, yeah. way of putting it. But um, the, the ability to the ability to maybe recede within yourself or or a loved one you're holding hands with in a theater where you're captive and that's the key is there's something about entering that space that makes you uh, shut off your phone and shut off the world um, and hopefully shut off your distractions and your thoughts and that's what we say about the IMAX format is that the audience is captive. That's a powerful thing, whether you're a sponsor or a filmmaker, whatever it is. Uh, and there's less and less of that around that idea that you would consecrate your time, your valuable time to a cinematic experience. Um, but I think it's worth it. You know, it is in a sense, um, and has been a sort of my church, um, you know, where I go and I emerge from with this new perspective, a new energy and a reignited sense of curiosity. Yeah, I think there's something also to be said for the sense of um, uh, being in the presence of something larger than yourself, something that instills a, that, you know, from when you go back to even, say, the architecture of cathedrals, um, you know, back in the whenever they were built, Middle Ages or so forth, there was a reason these structures were huge and grand. And when you, you know, when you think of some of the great masters of painting and sculpture, et cetera, this, this notion of essentially being dwarfed uh, by the grandeur of creation. And, you know, I, I think you, you, know, you were speaking of your days in, in college and going to see three movies a day, et cetera, and how that impacts you almost on a chromosomal level in terms of how it uh, it alters the way you engage with the world. And I often wonder, you know, if somebody had sat beside you and done the same thing, there's, there's a probability that they may have emerged 
okay, I just saw three movies, but it hasn't altered the way I think about art or the way I think about life. But if you remove that possibility of going to that cathedral, as you just called it, you know, your church, the cinema, then I really do think you're robbing at least certain people within the culture of that opportunity to be um, just lost in a sense of what's possible. And that doesn't always mean big special effects. It often just means, as you just said, I am captive and I am being, I am being immersed in this story and this drama uh, and this experience of others. You're also incredibly receptive. And, and so there's something about seeing a film like, uh, and there's so many examples, but Chloe Zhao's The Rider, you emerge and you feel sort of, uh, I don't know, there's a, something about the gentleness and the neorealism about the characters that you just want to be a better person after that film or, you know, emerging out of a film like Taxi Driver, where, right. you know, you feel the grime of that city and you even look at coins in your own palm in a different way, just because of the observational nature of, of and the paranoia of Travis Bickle. So, you know, as Roger Ebert called cinema, it's, you know, it's an empathy box, right? You can, in the space of two hours or an hour and a half or whatever, you can empathize with a character who, who lives in Yemen or whatever. And you just did no idea of their life prior to this film. But that's, that's, how, that's us being receptive to that experience. You know, we've chosen to go there and put ourselves through this. And it is larger than life and it's not disposable. And that's what I fear about this world of content that we Absolutely. call it now. Content. We don't even talk about making movies anymore. We're talking about making content. And, and I have this sort of revulsion to that because then we're just reduced to these little icons that you it's just... It's like fast food. With. It is. It, it unfortunately is. And I don't want to knock it. I, I think like having all this content at our fingertips is incredible. And it's kind of like, you know, the sort of the dual edge of technology where we have this, this, this incredible computer, uh, that can, you know, <laughs> answer all of our questions in our pocket. You know, it's this enormous capacity yet. Has it made us, um, you know, ultimately more inquisitive or given us a greater sense of wonder. I don't know. Um, that has to be fostered. And so I think these cathedrals or these sort of semi-sacred experiences, and you know, sometimes you just need a good comedy, you need a good laugh or whatever. And, and I'm, I don't want to, you know, um, uh, be too, too pretentious about the thing either. But I think that our choice in the matter and, 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 and the idea of you can, you can have a great streaming experience, but you can also you know, go to the cinema or you can go and see it in IMAX as I hope people would be encouraged to do because that really is a premium experience. If you, uh, you know, I think some scenes in Avatar maybe will cut cut too fast for at least for my brain in IMAX, but the sound of that film, I mean, that's the other aspect of this is, yes, the image surrounds your periphery, but, you know, now we've got 12 channel sound and and not that six wasn't bad. I mean, it's, it's tremendous. Uh, but it, it, it is something you cannot get at home and it's something that's not disposable. You know, a lot of effort has gone in to the, to the architecture and design of the sort of the raked seating to give you that unique perspective. Um, and, and gosh, in an era where we can't travel, you know, or, uh, uh, or see our loved ones and that kind of thing, you know, I do think there's this hunger to go out and experience, you know, a window into another world. Uh, because let's face it, our lives are relatively short and we're not going to be able to do all the things that we need to do. And cinema is one of the ways, uh, along with literature and others, I mean, that we connect and that we are changed in a relatively short period of time. 
What lately has been provoking your sense of wonder? What have you seen? Uh, what have you been watching uh, through the COVID months that has inspired you and uh, sort of kept the flame burning in, in terms of cinema's ability or film's ability to move people, whether through drama or comedy or just that sense of wonder we were speaking of? Yeah, I I watched a lot, and um, I think that I I don't know if I've seen anything that's absolutely shaken me to my foundation. Sadly, I do have the Criterion Channel now. You know, for a long time, Canadians couldn't get that. You know, the Turner movie classics and everything. Um, uh, the number of streaming services available to people who like certain niche cinema is incredible. So. Uh, you know, almost anything I've gone and I've, I've binged a ton of Korean films, um, out of this fascination and I've seen some really brilliant stuff and I've gone back and I watched, you know, the, uh, Sayyid Ray's Apu trilogy and, uh, things that I normally would go and see in a cinema tech, uh, or in a repertory cinema. Um, that requires a little bit of discipline because, you know, sometimes at the end of the day, you're just exhausted. And that's why I think, uh, to, agree, to a degree, you know, hour-long television lends itself better to a lifestyle where you're just slammed with responsibilities and children and so forth. Um, and, 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 you know, there was this great joke at the Golden Globes about how, you know, I don't have time for a two-hour movie, but I have time for, um, you know, five seasons of, yes, exactly. of, of like right, yeah. one-hour shows that last, you know, uh, 10 or 20 episodes or something. Um, <laughs> don't put on that movie. Exactly. Who can commit? Well, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's a bit like I've been doing more reading, uh, during the pandemic than ever. And I try and balance my fiction with nonfiction. And, and I've come to start, I've started to feel that actually, uh, fiction is more important than ever. Uh, And maybe it's because I probably read, uh, two nonfictions for every fiction because with nonfiction, I kind of read the back cover. I know what I'm going to get. I'm going to learn about, you know, the creation of Saudi Arabia, or I'm going to learn about, uh, uh, you know, quantum mechanics or whatever it is that I'm going to learn about. Um, but with fiction, there's a risk there. Um, and there's a tremendous reward as well, but you know, you have to be like a hundred pages in, uh, if you don't know anything about the book or if it's not part of a series or something. Uh, and then, you know, you have this trust to the author and a love for the characters. And then my gosh, you know, you sort of almost lose yourself. And, uh, and that's, I, I worry that in, in our sort of world of distraction and Twitter and, you know, social media, that, that our ability to sustain ourselves and to nourish that sense of wonder, curiosity, uh, through, through stories, through literature and through cinema, um, you know, maybe evaporating. Sometimes I have that concern. Um, I think it's a valid concern, uh, because, you know, I can, I can say I, Probably like everybody else, I probably am not reading as many books as I used to. But over th- this past summer, I, I, I don't shut up about this book, um, and and I've burdened everybody with this. So I'll I why stop now? But Richard Powers, the Overstory. Have you read that? No, but I've heard uh, from a couple people that I should. And yeah, it's uh, astounding. It 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 really really is astounding. And it anyway, when I was reading it last summer you know, I, w- I would read it at 50, 60, 70 pages at a take. And it literally felt different. Something in my head felt different and it felt familiar. And I welcomed that feeling. It, you know, it wasn't, uh, it was so different than uh, any type of engagement with, um, uh, broadly speaking, content that I had made. 
sometimes I wonder whether uh, the immersion into stories uh, and, and, and stories is very broad for me because, you know, sometimes uh, you can have a non-traditional story that has very few words in it where, uh, and sometimes that's the most profound. And that's, that's when I think IMAX films can be their best when you have wordless sequences that take you through minutes and minutes of, of an environment that is breathtaking or just so surprising. But when you, um, when, when you kind of emerge from that and you feel like you've lived another life, uh, because I, I so think true. we all live with the sense of, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, we're always craving more, right? This is the nature of our society, but are we satisfied with our single life as it is? And I think we go through moments where maybe we are, maybe we're not, but the ability to live other lives, uh, in these short bursts, whether it's in a theater or uh, in streaming and under the right context or through literature or theater or whatever it is, or, or music that is uh, irreplaceable. I mean, that's just a reminder of the power of the arts in general um, and how important that is because not only does it foster things like empathy and, and hopefully make us better citizens, but it, uh, it, it gets back to what you talked about initially was that it makes us incredibly appreciative of the richness uh, and the gift that is life itself. And it's something that we take for granted, like staring us in the face. Um, and, you know, we need to be sh sh uh, shaken sometimes from our, our sort of uh, staid status quo. Uh, and that's what art should do. So very true. Well, Daniel Ferguson, thank you so much for your time. Uh, you're as thoughtful uh, a interviewee as you are a filmmaker, which doesn't surprise me at all, <laughs> having been had the privilege of having many conversations with you prior to this. And by the way, a little plug for Filmmakers Collaborative. You and I never would have met if it weren't for Filmmakers Collaborative. So double thanks there to the uh, organization that sponsors this podcast. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We love Filmmakers Collaborative. Uh, been a part of my life now for almost 20 years. Um, since that film you mentioned, um, Wired to Win, Surviving the Tour de France, which was uh, um, originally called Brain Power um, and was really the brainchild of the partner's healthcare system. Um, it was just a celebration of the decade of the brain and the brain is the engine of all human possibility. But yes, Filmmakers Collaborative uh, was, you know, has been a fiscal sponsor on many of my projects uh, and, and so very dear to my heart. That is great to hear. Well, I guarantee you, I'll be following your work. I'll be staying in touch. And when your next grand awe-inspiring film is ready for the world, I do hope that you'll um, you'll speak with me about it. Well, if, you know, certainly if people are up for it, uh, I think it's a 25% seating capacity at the Museum of Science. Uh, Superpower Dogs uh, is playing oh, now uh, and uh, narrated by Chris Evans. And this is um, in Boston. It is in Boston, you know, so as far as the New England area, uh, that's an opportunity to see uh, Super Paradox, which was shot over multiple years and follows the sort of the, the lives of uh, the world's most extraordinary dogs and their human partners as they fight crime and save lives. Um, and, uh, and narrated so that, that's, by that's Newton Native and the Museum of Science. Narrated by Newton Native and uh, Hollywood hunk Chris Evans. That's right. Yeah, I play the dog, so. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, thank you again. Thank you very much for having me, Michael. 
All right. You take care. We'll talk soon.